Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks. I'm Anna Ward, a Senior Residential Analyst, and I'm here today with Asia-Pacific Head of Research, Nick Holt, who'll be hosting today's episode. So Nick, you've lined up an interesting guest today and you've got a couple of night frank speakers. What are the sort of key themes and takeaways from the episode? This week's episode, we've looked at three different perspectives at what's happening in the commercial or office markets here in Asia-Pacific. We start with a very special guest, Tom Rafferty, who's the regional director for Asia for the Economist Intelligence Unit. And he gives a real sort of macro view of what's going on in all the economies across the region. We then take it a level down and we're speaking to Justin Eng, who's the Associate Director of Research Asia Pacific, my colleague of Singapore. And he talks a little bit about what's happening in the region's office market, especially given the macroeconomic climate that Tom refers to how that's playing out in the office markets in terms of demand, and then also looking at the supply side of the equation, looking at how much supply is coming into the market, subleasing space, surrendered space, et cetera, and what all that means for corporates and occupiers. And then finally, we have uh, Wendy Lau, who's the executive director of office services in Knight Frank Hong Kong, and she talks about what it means for her day to day in the office markets in Hong Kong, where their clients are finding challenges and where they're having opportunities. So three different perspectives through three different lenses with three fantastic guests. Okay, so we're joined now by Tom Rafferty, who's the Regional Director Asia for the Economists Intelligence Unit. And he looks over all of the economies in the Asia Pacific region, looking at drivers and trends to help direct corporates and investors and governments across the region. So, Tom, thank you very much for joining us. The first question I can ask you is just what is the state of the economies across the Asia-Pacific region, six or seven months on from the outbreak of the COVID virus? How are all the economies doing? Yeah, it's a pretty mixed picture across Asia-Pacific, actually, at the moment, in terms of how economies are sort of doing through this ongoing crisis. There are different speeds and tracks of recovery, so to speak. There's a grouping of, I think, countries which are making faster progress towards normalization and management of the pandemic. They would include economies like China, which is back to growth in the earlier terms, South Korea, Taiwan, and, and perhaps Vietnam as well. All these economies are distinguished by I think more effective management of the pandemic and an ability to sort of normalize economies and move away from some of the supply side shocks that we saw beginning with this outbreak quicker than elsewhere. So that's kind of one group of countries which is a little bit ahead of the rest of the region and probably leads globally actually. I think elsewhere you've got a big grouping of countries which have exited the most stringent period of lockdown measures and are now, as we kind of end up Q3 at the moment, are now looking to get their economies back on, on stream. So that would include economies like Japan, for example, Singapore, Australia. We're seeing varying paces of normalization, but in general, things are pointing in a relatively positive direction. And then I think the final grouping is kind of what you might call the laggards, where you still have pandemic still spreading relatively quickly um, and rapidly and not really being under control and probably probably will never actually become under control. So this is predominantly some emerging markets with large informal economies. So India is the most obvious example of this, where COVID continues to spread, spread very rapidly. And I think it would be very difficult to bring under control effectively. 
and the economic impact on India through the lockdown measures it applied during the second quarter of the calendar year was particularly stringent, so the biggest decline in GDP across any G20 economy in India. Indonesia, there are some similar dynamics. The economic impact has not been quite so large, but the pandemic dynamics are quite similar there. So for these large emerging markets in the region, there's still quite a long way towards getting COVID under control and taking steps to normalise economies in a sustainable way. So yeah, I think it's quite a mixed picture overall across the region. But if you're comparing or benchmarking Asia versus other parts of the world, in general, it's an outperformer, right? If you're helped by the Chinese economy. So at the EIU, we're forecasting Asian GDP to contract by about 2% this year. Um, and that compares with uh, contractions, for example, of I think around 7 8% in Europe, 5% in North America, about 8% in South America. So sort of in, in the global context, Asia's performance, economic performance has been stronger. Although, of course, there's still lots of lingering issues and challenges which will come up next year as well. Two things that are being discussed a lot in the Asia-Pacific region at the moment are firstly supply chain security or diversity, and secondly, this idea of more economic self-sufficiency. And I know the IU has just released a paper looking at sort of self-sufficiency within the Asia-Pacific region. Are you able to share a little bit more about this, what's driving it, and what this could mean for the economies in Asia-Pacific? Thanks, Nick, for flagging that paper. It's called Asia's Inward Turn. I just said it's available on EIU.com. Yeah, I think it's um, it's a noticeable trend that's come up this year, partly driven by the pandemic. And indeed, it's a conversation that we've also been hearing in other countries in the world, particularly around issues around building up more resilient and secure supply chains, particularly in key areas like healthcare and, and medical, for example. Asia is also a part of that conversation. But I think in the paper, the, the three countries that we look at, so they're China, India, and Indonesia, where we identify this trend, there's some sort of interesting different dynamics. And I think geopolitics is a big factor here, as well as short-term issues around, say, healthcare supply. China's inward turn is clearly driven and motivated by concerns about the direction of the US-China relationship and the possibility, or probably in China's leadership size, the probability that they are entering a period of protracted and probably quite dangerous long-term competition. And so the Chinese leadership is very concerned about areas where it may have vulnerabilities in terms of reliance on US goods and services, which are particularly sensitive for its own, say, industrial supply chain. So the obvious example is the role of US technology in semiconductors production. China imports most of its semiconductors from Taiwan and from South Korea, but US technology is embedded in in those products. And the US government has been steadily increasing the restrictions on shipments of such semiconductors to China, Chinese companies above a certain level. So a potential potential risk for China's industrial economy going forward. So the pivot, what we're seeing this year in China is really just stronger effort to build up domestic capacity in those key areas where there is a vulnerability, perceived vulnerability to US supply and semiconductors is the other example, but it does actually stretch a bit more wider than that as well. So in the paper, we also talk about areas like food, energy, and some areas in terms of, say, machinery as well. And I think it clearly, on behalf of the Chinese leadership, it's overall, I think it shows a preference to managing risk above economic efficiency and growth uh, that's seen as more important challenge at the moment so the impact there going forwards could be quite substantial because clearly if you if you're stepping back from global supply chains they do, it is going to have an impact on economic efficiency in the medium long term 
for India, it's a kind of a similar dynamic, but the concern isn't about the relationship with the US, it's about relations with China, given the border disputes that we've seen this year. India is dependent on Chinese imports in several key areas, electronics, machinery, and some sensitive areas like pharmaceutical ingredients and so on. So the Indian government's launched a self-reliant India movement this year, and a big part of that is trying to build up more resilience in this domestic industrial economy and become less import dependent in key areas, like some of the ones I mentioned, but also areas like defense and, and arms as well. So there's already um, launching incentive policies trying to stimulate investment in, this, in these areas, for example. And then in Indonesia, it's not so much geopolitics, but just long-standing economic concerns about the country's trade deficit and persistent reliance on imports and the risk that that creates in terms of volatility in the, in the country's exchange rate. So in Indonesia, they've been sort of brushing off talk this year of import substitution policies and trying to come up with some, a roadmap for building out their own sort of supply chain and industrial capacity in areas like consumer goods, automotive, food and beverage, and, and so on. So again, it's certainly a discernible trend in the region, and there are some differences between those three countries, but it does seem at the moment that Asia is kind of joining this this deglobalization trend that's become quite marked in recent years in the West. Really, really interesting uh, developments in, in the Asian region, and certainly would encourage any, any listener to check out the EIU's report on this. If I can bring it back to the macroeconomic outlook, how would you assess the outlook for the Asia PAC economies over the next six to 12 months from the perspective of, of a company or potentially an investor? I mean, the worst is, I think, over in terms of the very significant declines in economic activity that we saw earlier this year. And I think, at least benchmarked against other regions in the world, in many parts of Asia, I think the pandemic is under somewhat better control than elsewhere. There are some variations there. I mentioned um, challenges in India and Indonesia, for example, earlier. But that does point to, hopefully, a decent recovery in 2021. Regionally, um, after a 2% decline in GDP this year, we are expecting a bounce back to around 5% growth for the region as a whole next year. And that will be led by a rebound in China, for example, where we think growth will come back to above 7% next year. And also Indian growth will inevitably bounce back after a very steep decline this year. So I would say on the surface, things look like they are getting better. And I still think compared to the regions, Asia is outperforming. So from an investor perspective, building exposure to the region makes sense in that context, I would say. But that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be lingering issues and structural challenges that need to be addressed uh, going forwards. And remember that a lot of the recovery that's going to come through next year, at least in terms of those headline GDP numbers that are cited for China and India, for example, is driven primarily by low sort of comparison effects, right? So in sequential terms, we're not expecting economic growth momentum to be particularly strong next year. And it may indeed be difficult for economies to get back to more sustained states of sequential growth until there's a lot of confidence that the pandemic is under control or we have a, a vaccine widely available. It'd be interesting to see uh, in next year how some of these structural challenges uh, that have come up this year are addressed and begin to be confronted. I think one of the key things that investors need to be looking at is like how governments are going to taper or reduce their level of support for economies. 
and what impact that has on economic activity. Now, some governments in the region have done very large stimulus packages this year, probably Japan is the largest, but several governments have done very significant packages. How quickly can they go in that direction towards normalizing their policy settings and support for the economy? Our, our guess is that they won't be able to do that next year. But the longer they, they delay this process, the more difficult it will be, we think, in terms of uh, reducing their economy's reliance on this level of additional support. So I think from a long-term perspective, that's quite a big challenge. Some other countries, perhaps, which didn't do sort of large-scale stimulus, maybe a little bit more nimble in their response. China is an interesting example that actually provided very little stimulus for the economy this year, perhaps around 3 to 4% of GDP. And most of that, well, that was directed at sort of the investment channel, particularly infrastructure. So China's economy hasn't really racked up a significant higher level of debt this year, perhaps compared with others. So that's a positive thing going forward and suggests that the government's still a bit worried about sort of management of these debt risks that we've talked about for China for several years. So I'd say that's a kind of a positive thing going forward, but it doesn't say that there aren't these issues as well. So I think to conclude, we are expecting a decent rebound in terms of headline GDP growth in, in Asia next year, led by a couple of key economies. But as elsewhere in the world, there are going to be ongoing structural challenges and risks that need to be addressed going forwards, um, particularly on how governments begin to taper and peel back the additional support they provide for their economies this year. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and providing those insightful views on the Asia-Pacific economies. This was Tom Rafferty. Uh, the Regional Director, Asia, for the Economist Intelligence Unit. Okay, so now I'm joined by Justin Eng, the Associate Director of Research Asia-Pacific for Knight Frank. Knight Frank Asia-Pacific has just released a market focus report on the office market across Asia-Pacific region called Supply and Shadows. Well, Justin, welcome. Perhaps first you can just tell us a little bit about what this report is all about. Sure. For the report, we actually took a look at the office market in this current state and also took a deeper dive into, I guess, the different pain points that we see could potentially come over the coming 12 to 24 months. First off, and the most pertinent one was the oncoming supply seen within several markets within the region, as well as given the weaker economic conditions, certain occupiers or large occupiers within certain markets have started to, I guess, re-strategize their real estate needs uh, and hence are putting some of the existing space onto the market as sublease. And, and this sublease or shadow space, as we call it, has come onto the market and is actively competing against the existing vacancies in the market. Thanks. And just in terms of actual supply coming into the Asia-Pacific markets, how is the demand-supply balance at the moment? Which markets are seeing significant supply and what's the overall supply situation? So just, just to talk about the supply pipeline over the coming 12 to 24 months, generally across the Asia-Pacific region, the supply outlook is rather mixed. There are certain markets that have really significant amounts of supply as a percentage of its existing stock coming uh, due to complete over between 2020 to 2022, whereas there are some markets that have relatively little supply, uh, and so these will be a more manageable situation for them. Um, so just to share a bit more from our report, we showed that there were certain markets that are expected to be hit quite hard, such as Jakarta, Beijing, and Shanghai, who over the next 12 to 24 months are expected to see between 
20 to 30% of their existing stock of office come on as new supply. And for certain markets, especially like Jakarta and Shanghai, where current vacancy rates are already quite high in the high teens or almost 20%, these markets going forward could potentially face quite a bit of pressure on their rents and the market conditions over the next one to two years. On the flip side, certain markets such as Hong Kong and Singapore, even though vacancies there have been rising over the past few quarters due to softer economic conditions, the outlook for supply is rather muted. So for Singapore's case and Hong Kong's case, new supply as a percentage of existing stock only accounts for about 2 to 3% of uh, the, the total stock that's going to come online over the next 12 to 24 months. And this still is not a large significant new supply that's going to hit the market. So these markets will fare slightly better in terms of the supply-demand imbalance over the coming years. How about the subleasing or shadow space? What are the dynamics across the region? Are, are we seeing a lot of this space coming in and what percentages uh, are we talking about? How is that impacting the overall supply situation? I, I think the first thing to note is that subleasing space or shadow space, it's normally a private transaction done off market. So it's something that is not really available in terms of the public sphere of information. But what we have gathered from uh, several of our teams on the ground, mainly Auckland, Singapore, Sydney and Hong Kong, sublease space that has come onto the market recently or currently ranges between 0% uh, in Hong Kong for, for that case to as high as 3.6% of the existing stock in the market. And so from what we've seen, it's, it's actually not a significant amount at the moment, despite the very poor economic conditions across the Asia-Pacific. As what we're seeing is most corporate occupiers are still adopting a wait-and-see approach and not actively cutting their space and putting it back onto the market to, I guess, recuperate costs. I guess the conclusion there is that it's, there is a rising threat of sublease space, but as I've, I've mentioned previously, the supply that's potentially coming onto several markets is something that we are more concerned about and that is something that occupiers should be taking note of vis-a-vis -vis more sublease space potentially coming onto the market. So potential clouds on the horizon. And a reminder, the latest report, the Asia-Pacific Prime Office Market Focus, Supply and Shadows, is available on the Knight Frank website. Okay, so I'm joined now by Wendy Lau, the Executive Direct Director of Office Services Hong Kong for Knight Frank. And obviously, Hong Kong is a very important market, very important international office market, but also for Knight Frank. So delighted to um, have you on the podcast. Can I just ask, what are the current office market conditions in Hong Kong? Thank you, Nick. The impact of COVID-19 social unrest, along with the weak economy, continue to affect the business sentiment in Hong Kong. Overall, Hong Kong rents dropped 18.7% year on year and extending the decline to the 14-month consecutive months. Overall vacancy rate is 8.5%, which hit the record high in the last 15 years. Office tenants remain cautious and continue to seek downsizing and cost-saving options. Going forward, market conditions remain uncertain. Vacancy will still stay high. Landlords are expected to be more flexible and try to lower rent to attract more tenants. The good news is rental drop is slowing down a bit since last month. Transaction level increase. 
there is also a very good golden opportunity for tenant to get the bargain deals in the market. Those rental guys actually provide a lot of golden opportunity for tenant for expansion and upgrade. And we see those companies are mainly from the Chinese company and the tech giants. So looking at the sort of demand and supply, I mean, we say demand has been a bit subdued due to obviously the, the economy, to COVID, to social unrest, etc. What's happening on the supply side of the equation? Are we seeing a lot of new supply coming into the market? Are there a lot of new office buildings coming in? Is the supply situation, you said vacancy was at a 15-year high, is this a real concern maybe for, for a landlord or for an investor? I think in the short term, it's not a key concern in Hong Kong for the coming new supply because the upcoming supply is still manageable. As majority of the supply was completed in last year and the year before, 2018 and 2019, the next big supply cycle will be around in 2023. And so basically 2020 and 21 has no major supply in Hong Kong. So that is not a main concern in Hong Kong office market. And you talked about companies looking at downsizing or certain companies looking at downsizing. What are their strategies? Are they subleasing some of their excess space? Are they surrendering? What are we seeing in the Hong Kong market? Basically, in Hong Kong, subletting is not very popular because majority of subletting only applicable to a very sizable tenant, i.e. over 50,000 square feet. So subletting is not very popular in Hong Kong. However, surrender is a big highlight in Hong Kong right now. We are hitting close to 1.5 million square feet. We call shadow stock in the market, which is the highest in the last 18 years. Thank you so much, Wendy, for joining us on this podcast and providing your really useful and insightful commentary on what's going on in the Hong Kong office market. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information.